0: 80% of your success comes down to having an I'm worth it mindset. If you can wire that into you, then you'll be successful. Imagine you said every day, this commute is killing me. My boss is driving me crazy. Your subconscious mind is feeling that something's killing you. Something's driving you crazy. Your words directly affect your physiology, your immune system. So everything is affected by your thoughts. Whatever you focus on, you get more of it. We've got to learn, well, let's focus on something better. My daughter was grown up when I was told I had cancer. It was the decision to not let it in. And of course, when I got run over, same thing happened. My doctor said, you wouldn't want to walk for six months, but that was so boring for me. So when he said six months, in my head I decided to hear six weeks. Your job is to think better thoughts so your brilliant mind and body can start to make them real. If you have that passion to 10X your life, then it's already in you. The only thing that ever holds you back are your beliefs. That isn't about going to college, getting a degree or coming for money, it's about having an idea. So you're going to learn to reframe your thoughts, your beliefs, reframe everything and it will change your entire life, but not just for a little while, but for all of your life.
1: Hello, beautiful beings, and welcome back to the Know Thyself podcast, where every single week we get the honor and privilege to sit down with a brilliant mind to learn more about the true nature of self and the world around us at deeper and deeper levels. My guest today is one of the world's leading hypnotherapists. She is a best-selling author of multiple books, and she works with some of the most prestigious individuals on the planet. She's the founder of the I Am Enough movement. And a rapid transformational therapy, or the RTT method, and she trains thousands of therapists around the world every single year. Marissa Peer, thank you for being here.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm honored. I'm yeah. flattered.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, really looking forward to diving into uh, so much of your brilliant work and how you share with the world. Is I feel you're doing such important work. And where I want to start today is the power of the subconscious mind, mm. because. Most people are familiar with our conscious waking mind. We can choose, I like this, I don't like that. We can accept and reject, but the subconscious mind cannot reject. It always has to accept. As you say, it's always on record. Mm. And so why does that become a powerful realization when we want to become conscious creators and choose the path of life we're in? Because as we discern what we do and don't expose yourself to, uh, we can then choose the effects and the ripples that the subconscious mind, you know, carries throughout our whole Mm -hmm. life. So yeah, how important do you feel like it is to guard our subconscious mind and choose what we expose it to?
0: Well, the subconscious mind is a feeling mind. It's not really the thinking mind, it's designed to feel. So if you say, oh God, I feel so nervous, then you're going to feel nervous. We you say, I feel so excited, you're going to feel excited. So the great thing is that you can guide the subconscious. You should really be the CEO of your own subconscious mind. And of course, how it works is the subconscious mind is the feeling mind. So we have thoughts, feelings, behaviors. They go in that order. First, you think a thought, then you feel a feeling, then you act in a certain way. Many Schools of thought are busy trying to change your behaviors, or indeed your actions, but you always need to go back and just change your thoughts. They always come first. So if you think, I'm terrified of flying, you can change that to, wow, it's the one time in my life I get to do sit down, do nothing, read a book, someone brings me dinner, don't even have to answer my phone. So you just got to keep changing your thinking, and a belief is nothing more than a thought you think a lot. If you change your thoughts, you change your beliefs, then you change your feelings, so the subconscious mind doesn't think it only feels, but but it feels in accord to what you tell it. So when you say, this is a nightmare, this freeway is killing me, this commute is making me go crazy, I'm stressed out with things, I'm dying under the pressure, or even I'm killing it, the mind doesn't literally work out what that means, it just feels it.
1: So there's the thoughts that we think and how that you know affects the subconscious mind, but then also what we expose her to in the external world. I'm curious what you feel like exposing yourself to drama, gossip, even like scary movies. Mm. It feels like that frequency gets imprinted on our subconscious mind.
0: It's a really bad idea to watch a crime show before you go to bed at night. The last thing you do before you go to sleep is what you'll think about a lot. So if you expose yourself to drama, to negativity, to gossip, to criticism, if you expose yourself to like news and listen to bad stuff and wake up and put on the news and come up on the news and always talk about how terrible everything is, Whatever you focus on, you move towards. You can't keep your mind in two lanes. So here's a lane that says, I'm super positive and happy. And children, here's another one that says, I'm anxious and nervous and affected by everything going on around me. Well, you, you can't go in both lanes. You've got to go in one lane. So we have to choose which lane am I going to go in? Shall I not listen to that? Or shall I do think something else? Can I choose to not be around that? Because if you're not choosing... To change, you must be choosing to stay the same. And one of my favorite expressions is, I'm choosing to do this and I'm choosing to feel great about it. That directly says to your mind, oh, you have a choice. You're making a choice. If you say, choosing not to have coffee with sugar in it and I'm choosing to love it, I'm choosing to have fruit instead of cake, choosing to love it, choosing to go to the gym and choosing to love it, you don't think, oh, don't really want to be here because you're signaling to your mind very clearly, I have a choice, I'm making this choice and I want to stay here. And so it's very important. So imagine if I pulled out a needle right now, a hypodermic needle, that doesn't mean anything. If you're going to have a tattoo, you love that needle. If you're in pain, you love that needle. If you want some Botox, you love that needle. Or you could go, oh my God, that's gonna hurt, that's gonna go in my arm or my gum. Same thing if I had a bit of a lump of meat in my hand. It's not the meat. If you're a vegan, that would be offensive. If you're a Hindu, it would be really offensive. But if you're into keto or bodybuilding, it would be really exciting. So it's never the thing. It's how we think about the thing. And we get to choose how we think about the thing every day. And so we've got to constantly upgrade our thoughts. you are all busy upgrading our software and our computers and phones, but you've got to upgrade your own software too.
1: Mm.
0: And when you do that, you'll win at life all the time.
1: The effect that... The negative thoughts we have on, about ourselves and the world, mm-hmm. uh, we're not aware, and it's kind of often delayed in terms of how it impacts our physiology, right? We might feel a little bit more anxious or sad at the moment, but as those negative thoughts start to build over time, they can manifest in a more dense illness or something like that. Yeah. And so I'm curious for you to share just the negative repercussions that negative thoughts have on our physiology.
0: Yeah, well, so if you think negative thoughts, such as, you know, I'm terrible at exams, I'm really bad at confrontation, I'm not good around people, I've got an awful memory, then your mind is going to try and get you out of that situation. And it does affect your physio, but it also affects your physical health. So imagine you said every day, this commute is killing me, my boss is driving me crazy, and my customers are the customers from hell. Your subconscious mind is feeling that something's killing you, something's driving you crazy. And the subconscious feeling being mind will go, okay, I'm going to give you a lovely ulcer. I'm going to give you panic. I'm going to give you chronic diarrhea. And now you can't go to that place that you say is killing you. So you always have to go back to the thought first. In front of anything, there's always a thought. And when you think negative thoughts like, oh, the weather is depressing, the country is depressing, people are depressing, you'll take on that physiology of being you know, we say, I'm so down, I'm so low, or we say, I'm so high, I'm so up. So your words directly affect your physiology, your immune system, your gut, your metabolic rate, your skin. Everything is affected by, because your skin is nothing more than the largest organ in your body. So everything is affected by your thoughts. And if you could look inside and see the effect your thoughts have on your body, you stop yourself thinking negative thoughts because of course you can choose to say, I've got a great immune system, I've got a terrible immune system, I've got a sensitive stomach, I've got great digestion. We're all free to choose. But if you could see what the negative thoughts did to your body because it is not free to choose, well you can choose to say anything. Your body has zero choice but to act on the words you say. And if you could see the damage that does, you would stop very quickly doing that. I'll give you an example. I worked with a doctor who said, "You know, I say every day, this is doing my head in. This is doing my head in." Very English, and I got a brain tumor, and I knew, I knew it with that language. I was someone who had chronic gut problems, and his expression was, "I'm losing my shit," and I lost my shit last week, and I'm going to lose my shit again tomorrow. I said, "Stop saying that. Such a horrible thing to say." By the way, you know, clearly it's not true. You'd be wearing black Levi's and not khaki <laughs> pants, so it's obviously not real. But when you keep saying that. Like Americans say this word, killing it. Well, oh, I'm killing it. I'm going to kill it. You're killing it here. We should really something. what does that actually mean? Do I really want to be killing it? Probably not. So the simplest thing is to look at the words and just take out. Like this is driving me insane. It's a challenge. This is making me go nuts. It's just a temporary situation. It's very easy to minimize the, the powerful stuff and maximize the good stuff. Mm-hmm.
1: So those negative thoughts are so subtle and insidious and they are so familiar to us. I'm curious how, so is your process of rewiring that patterning then just every time you catch yourself to bring awareness to it? Or is there a deeper way to be able to switch that pattern of negative thinking?
0: Well, there's a few things. First, you use hypnosis and go back to how, where, when, why you learn to be negative. No one is born negative. No baby says, oh, I don't have any hair. I've got any teeth. I've got these triple knees here. Babies are born full of tremendous self-belief. So the first thing is, where did you get that negative language from? Because once you understand it, you have the power to change it. You can also just say, hey, I know my friends have pointed out, I'm always saying this one thing. Like my little girl who I know said, "Mummy, how does Philippa get up the wall? And I'm like, well, I don't know, darling. And she, but she said she's gonna go up the wall if we get crayons in the carpet. And of course, children don't understand what up the wall is. And so I remember my friend saying that to me, you know, that her kid was driving her insane. I'm like, this kid that you wanted so badly is not driving you insane. Your words are making you insane. So it does take just a little while to pay attention. We, we tend to use the same language all the time, the same 12 to 15 words to describe something. And if you hang around someone who doesn't do think, oh, I'm going to use your language. I notice that you say, this is a challenge, this is a situation, this is a thing, this is an opportunity, rather than, oh my God, this is hell. You know, I was on a plane a couple of years ago, and this woman came back to her seat and actually screamed so loud. and went, oh my God, disaster. She was well, what is it? She said, my movie didn't pause when I went to the toilet. It's like, well, is that really a disaster? <laughs> is that really something to scream about? Isn't that just mildly inconvenient? Because when you say to the brain, disaster, hell, nightmare, you have to react as if you're in a nightmare, in a disaster, in hell. And we talk about hell being the line in the store on Christmas Eve. Well, hell is actually having no money to go to the store, having no one to buy food for. we Hell is the freeway drive to work. Actually, hell is having no job and no car and no money for gas to go to work. So one of the best things I find is to sit down and think, hey, you know what? I keep calling hell and a nightmare. Is that someone's fantasy dream come true? Their kid keeps them up all night. Their partner leaves their pants on the floor. Would someone go, I- I'd love that problem. I'd, in fact, I'd give anything for that problem. And what you, would you have given 10 years ago to have that problem? Your partner's annoying. Your kids gets peanut butter on the kitchen counter. The mortgage has gone up. Because often what we call hell is someone else's fantasy. And when you start to think about that, it really reminds you to stop using negative words for just everyday stuff like traffic, lines in the bank, mm. the fact that everything's going up in price, the fact that um, people are aggressive. You, you have to sort of change that and realize that, see, one of the rules of the mind is whatever you focus on, you get more of. If you have someone stick a needle in your arm and you look at it and think that it hurts, if you look at your phone or even cough as the needle goes in, you won't even notice it. So whatever you focus on, A, you move towards, and B, you get more of. So we've got to learn, well, let's focus on something better.
1: Yeah, it feels like we're just so lazy with our language at times. And even if it's in this sarcastic tone and perhaps a jovial spirit where we Mm. have these terms, it's like the mind is still picking up on those words.
0: Yes, if you say, I'm ancient, I'm falling apart, or I'm rubbish, or I'm the size of a house, or I'm eating like a pig and I'm a train wreck— the subconscious mind has no sense of humor. All it has is the ability to think your thoughts. So you think your thoughts, that's your job. But your mind's job is to make those thoughts real. So if you thought about something very sad now, your eyes might fill up with tears, even if you're at home. Think about something deeply embarrassing, you might go bright red. Think of food and your stomach will rumble. And for guys, if you think about sex, your, your body gives you a very physical reaction. Every thought you think creates a physical reaction and an emotional response. And so if you think about what you think about a drug will have more of an effect on you than what's in that drug. The placebo effect is the most powerful proof of what we think our body makes. So if our body's job is to make our thoughts real, then we must have a job too. And our job is to think better thoughts all the time. And of course, it starts being what you do, but very quickly becomes who you are. Your job is to think better thoughts, so your brilliant mind and body can start to make them real.
1: Mm. You spoke to how oftentimes these negative thoughts or patterns kind of originate from deeper childhood things, right? And these beliefs that are formed that limit us. Yeah. Um, And so you also, I've heard you share this expression about our repressed emotions, Mm. which are deeper seated that when a feeling not expressed in tears will mm. make other organs weep.
0: Yeah, I love that.
1: And so can you share more about how these repressed emotions can then manifest in physical illness?
0: Yeah. So I was in Mexico last week and I noticed, you know, every time someone serves us, they say, thank you, they go, no nada, don't mention it. And what they're saying is, don't praise me, don't thank me. And even that don't mention it was nothing. It's so weird that we allow So when I someone serves me and I go, thank, that was great. I want to say, thanks so much. I really enjoyed making that for you. I'm so glad you liked to, I don't want someone to say don't mention it, because I want to mention it, because I know that the fastest way to grow someone's self-esteem is by praise, so first we have this cultural thing, don't mention it, you say to someone, hey, I love that talk you gave, oh, it was terrible, didn't you notice, I'm I, I, speaking too quickly, I forgot the best bit, I went to Brit Red, I don't know, I thought you were great, so we have this cultural thing of denying praise, minimally, don't mention it, it was nothing. You buy someone to give the you shouldn't have done that. I, I, I don't really deserve it. So we're very good at minimizing it. And then secondly, we, we really don't understand the long-term effects of doing that because the fastest way to grow your self-esteem, bar nothing, is by praise. You know, self-esteem, if I say I hold you in the highest esteem, that's what I think of you, but self-esteem what I think of me. And so we're not taught, and we should be taught, hey, let's all grow our self-esteem today. Let's all believe in ourselves. Let's be confident. I I think I put RTT now into about at least 2,000 schools and counting, and all the schools that use it say, wow, these children do better academically because they feel better emotionally. Bullying doesn't exist. They're, They're competitive in a good way, but they're also very supportive of each other. And so we know that schools like Steiner and Mozart already do that, don't have this awful thing about kids picking on each other. So we know it works, but we have to go back to where did we learn to be so down on ourselves? And we learned it from our culture. We learned it from teachers. You know, don't show off. Don't draw attention to yourself. Don't be big-headed. We learned that from our parents. But now we also learn it from the media that is very into making everyone compare themselves. There are sites you can go on and say, hey, what am I? And they go, oh, you're a three, you're a four, you're definitely not a ten. And it's so damaging because comparison is, of course, the thief of joy. And how can you compare yourself or well, you need? I couldn't compare myself to you because you're totally different to me. And I think the school system is so damaging. I think in the next 10 years it's going to change so radically because the school system does streaming. And that's the worst thing you can do for a kid because the school system rewards achievement, never effort. You may get one kid who spent six hours on a project and a naturally gifted kid who spends 10 minutes and they get the prize. And you should never reward achievement. You should reward how much effort you put in. So a lot of our, I mean, I see with my clients especially, so much damage done by teachers who don't mean badly, but they say things like, Well, your brother could do this, or I had your sister in my class. She was really bright. What happened to you? Why can't you get this? And for children, when the teacher or the parent indeed doesn't appear to to meet their needs, the child can't think, oh, my teacher's going through the menopause, my mum's having my dad's drinking, my mum's depressed, my mum lost her job. All they can think is, I'm not good enough. So when a child's needs aren't met at home or in school, they don't stop loving their parents. They immediately stop loving themselves, and that's when we begin this process of, "Oh, my mom is unhappy. I guess I'm not enough. My dad's not here. I guess I'm not enough. My teacher's very ill, I guess I'm not enough." And so children can't work out that it's, you know, we think. We, we're born to adults, but actually the people raising us are growing up right next to us. They often are not developed, not mature, not sorted out, not evolved at all. And they're often growing up alongside us with many issues, but no one tells kids that. They go, you know, adults know everything, respect your elders, but they really don't know everything. And I sometimes say to some of my clients, you know, you're smarter than your parents. Your parents are more immature than you. And that gives them the freedom to go, yeah, you know, that's true. I thought it must be me, but actually it wasn't me, it was them.
1: Hmm. So then that like, after a decade or two of those repressed emotions continually building on top of each other, people might have, you know, a a serious physical illness that Mm -hmm. manifests. Oh
0: yeah, huge. And I know a lot of
1: your work is like kind of getting to the root of it, which is Mm. really in the subconscious mind of these deep-seated kind of stories that we hold about ourselves that manifest into the actions that we take and then therefore the illness that people have.
0: And also someone else's story. So many times we're, we're living, our parents, my mother might have said, you can't trust anyone. One of my clients said, my dad's still being on it was a jump and I'll catch you. I jumped, he walked away. He said, that's a lesson to you. You can't trust anyone. Don't trust anyone. But that was his father's story. So your mother may say, oh, all men let you down, make your own money, never depend, look at me, don't be like me. And very often we hear someone else's story, especially our parents. You can't trust people. People are going to use you. You're never going to be anything unless you work for yourself. And we make someone else's story our story. Like people say, my mom said you couldn't even trust your own shadow. But that's one of our biggest challenges. Someone else's story is not your story. Your story is your story to edit, update, rewrite, and change. You might go... You know, as the fifth girl, I should have been a boy. I was a third boy. My parents wanted a girl. But that's their story. Your story is you were meant to be you. You were meant to be here. You can't be the wrong baby. My parents are academics. They didn't really want... They want One of my clients said that her parents told her, we had you to take over your father's law firm. Only child, and she heard that every day we spent all this money on your school. She said, I don't want to... I want to be a DJ. And she ended up getting chronic migraines so bad because she didn't want to take over this law firm. Why should she? And eventually her father, instead of saying, my daughter's gonna take over the firm, began to say, she couldn't even be a waitress. She she gets these chronic migraines, you see, and she could never go to court and do what I do. And so when you say to the mind, "Mm, I don't want to do that, but I don't know how to get out of it the mind will come up with fascinating illnesses. You know, I met someone who had hypersensitivity to light and would burn all over her body. She couldn't even go out in daylight. But when we talked about it, she said, you know, when I was a kid, I was so badly bullied. And I said to my mum, can I stay home? She said, not be ridiculous. I can't stay home. I hate my job. Of course you can't stay home. You've got to go to school. Bullying got worse and she asked again, "Mum, can I stay home? And she said, no, you have to go to school. There's no choice. And I said, what did you think? She said, well, I just thought a thought. I wish I could stay home every day and never go out of the house. But that's not a thought. That is a direct instruction to the mind. Hey, mind, find a way. I can stay home and never leave the house. And then she developed this hypersensitive delight. She could never go out when she went back and looked at that and started to go, but that isn't me anymore, I don't live with my mom, I have a job I love. I mean, she was a coach, she only worked at home on a screen, but she realized that she made a choice as a tiny child when she lived in a world of feeling and not logic, because before the age of five there is no logic, just feeling. I mean, she was older than that when she said, I just want to stay home. But this is the genie. And your wishes, its when you say things like, I don't want to get bullied, I don't want to fail that exam, I don't want to go to school and have no friends, the mind thinks, let me act on that. How about a lovely um, stomach upset? How about a chronic bout of diarrhea? How about an autoimmune disease? And they can't go to school and you can't get bullied, which is why you've got to be very careful what you ask for. Because the mind, which is a feeling, will go ahead and find that for you.
1: Yeah, I think there's that saying, the mind is a powerful servant, but a horrible master. Yeah. So these lies that we hold, the stories that are passed Mm. on to us, it's upon us. We have the ability to rewrite that narrative and heal the bloodline so we don't pass it on to the next generation. So I'm curious what you think about, of course, telling yourself an empowering lie is Mm -hmm. better than telling yourself a disempowering lie.
0: Sure.
1: What about stepping beyond the need to tell yourself any story about life? Mm -hmm. uh, What thoughts do you have about that?
0: Well, you should tell yourself a story about life You should because, you know, you've got a blank slate and you've got to form a story. So you could say, you know, people are good people. They're going to help me if I go here and I get lost. I can say to someone, hey, could you direct me? Could you help me? Could you show me where to go? Or you could tell yourself a story. I'll ask for nothing. And what are you going to get? Well, nothing. But I also won't be disappointed because I never ask. And so... You have to form some kind of story. You, you have to form some kind of template. You have to start off as a little kid thinking life is good and I'm a great person. I have a gift and I've got that gift to share it with the world. And when I grow up, I'm going to find love. I'll give you a simple example. I worked with this stunning client and it was really shocking that she'd never found love in her life. And she said, no, I never get on a second. I don't know what's happening, but I can't find love. And it was something so simple. Her father used to say, every day you're, you're so, I love you so much and you'll never, ever, ever find anyone that will ever love you like I do. That wasn't a fleeting thought. That was repeated every day. Come in and say, I love you. You'll never find anyone to love you like me. Nobody could ever love you like me. And then that went in at some level and she formed a belief. I'll never find love the way my dad loves me. No man is ever gonna love me like he loves me, which is a silly belief and a very unhealthy belief. And so what you should say to your child is, I love you so much because you're lovable, and all your life you're going to find love. People are going to love you like I love you because you're a lovable person. So there's one belief, I love you because you're lovable, and you're going to find love. But here's another one, I love you because you're good, because you're smart, because you're pretty. What the kid hears is, is, oh, and if I wasn't, you wouldn't, so I better be really smart. I better really always look good. I better always be good good. Or another belief, no one will never love you like me. So you have three different experiences of what someone has told, and each one of those things will affect that child. So we have to make a decision. We have to start saying, I'm lovable just the way I am. I'm enough. You know, many I work with so many people who have this belief, you gotta earn love, buy love, work for love, run after love. You've got to be good to have love. And And if I have love, I'll be happy, and I'm going to work for it. And that isn't true. You're lovable right now just the way you are, and you won't be happy when you become lovable because you're already lovable. So it's like a a loop, isn't it? I've got to find something out there, but I'm not sure I deserve it, and I'm going to chase it while believing I'll never get it. And that's one of the biggest things wrong with people. They have this belief, I want something, It's not available, I'm gonna go after it anyway. I want love, my dad left when I was two. I want health, but I've got the depressive gene. I want to be healthy, but I've got the fat gene. And so it's almost like running with a big um, elastic band tied around. You can't go forwards unless you look at your beliefs. We all have beliefs that aren't ours, all you have to do is question your belief because when you question a belief, you already don't believe it. When your kids start to go, mummy. How do the reindeer get down the chimney? How does Father Christmas get all around the world in one day? How does the Easter bunny get into the house? You think, "Mm," you see, they question it. And often we tell, don't ask, we don't question. Some religions tell you, don't question anything. Just believe what I tell you. But the minute you question a belief, you doubt it. And so that's how to get better, question your beliefs. Who told me that? was it true and even if it was true for them is it true for me so when i was growing up there was a very common belief smart women couldn't find a husband no one's going to marry someone who's smarter than them wealthier than them because my grandmother's generation that was their truth you married a man and you stayed at home and looked after him and so if you were a smart ambitious woman you probably would be on your own but that isn't true now hasn't been true for years But we still have this, we still pick up these beliefs. You're finished when you're 40. You haven't even started when you're 40. Your fertility falls off a cliff when you're 30. actually falls off a cliff when you're 47, not 32. You know, you can get pregnant right up until your late 40s. But if you listen to the doctors, you never believe that. Hmm. And that, you know, here's a belief that's so nonsensical. You have to go to college to become successful but there's so many people now who never went to college. I have a friend of mine and she's put computer screens all over Nigeria. They're wired into concrete and these kids come from villages and they educate themselves on a computer. And some of them have created amazing things. Who would have thought you could make money by shaping eyebrows or making a ringtone or making that drink? What was that drink called that became a Big. Was it pride or prime?
1: Prime. Yeah.
0: You know, and prime. that isn't about going to college, getting a degree, or coming from money. It's about having an idea, mm. and then having the confidence to monetize that idea. So, confidence can take you further than a really high education. Self belief can make you wealthier than a degree. But it's only now that we're beginning to be taught that and understand that that's true.
1: Mm. Yeah, I loved everything you just shared. Funny you brought up Prime because Logan, Paul, who's one of the founders of it, is actually one of my good friends. I lived with him for a couple of years. We traveled, shot a lot of things. Mm. One of the like things that I really learned from him is that you know sometimes as you're speaking to, we can get what we want, but we will always attract what we believe we're worthy of. Of
0: course we will, yeah. 80% of your success comes down to having an I'm worth it mindset. I'm worth it, I deserve it, and I'm going to go out and get it. If you can wire that into you, then you'll be successful.
1: So the I am enough movement is a big, is Mm. a big thing that you kind of initiated and speaks to um, what so many people deep down feel like because of whatever narrative they were, they got through their family or Mm. whatever, they just don't feel. And so many of us at times just don't Mm. feel like we're enough. We're not worthy of whatever we may truly desire in life. So how did that movement come about?
0: You know, I've, been a therapist my entire adult life. And I realized very quickly that nearly all my clients, their issues would come back to not being enough. I worked with alcoholics, drug addicts, people who are addicted to shopping or even shoplifting. And of course, if you peel away what's going on, it's I need more because I'm not enough. I need more praise, more food, more cake, more drink, more drugs, more followers, because I'm not enough. So that was interesting. Then, of course, I see a lot of very successful people who'd say the same thing. You know, I've got this Oscar, I got this award, I got this pay rise, I got this business, but I still think I'm not enough. And so I realized that if I'm not enough is the common denominator of our issues and surely flipping it and saying I am enough would change it. So I put the I'm enough into schools. I wear these I'm enough bracelets. I'm showing people there's so many ways you can put I'm enough into your life. You can bake it into cookies, print it on your toast, write it on a blackboard. But you have to say it, state it, affirm it, embody it. Because again, if you wake up and think, I'm not enough, let we would go back to that ladder. If I think a thought, I'm not enough, then every feeling I feel is negative. I feel sad, disempowered, frustrated, angry, pissed off, defeated, so I thought a thought, I'm feeling feelings that match the thought or negative. And then then I'm going to act a certain way, which is often no way. I'm not going to take risks, I'm not going to ask someone out, I'm not going to ask for a promotion. And I'm justifying it because, well, of course, I can't do that because I'm not enough. So this thought, feeling, behavior comes back to the thought, of course, I didn't go for that. Of course, I didn't ask for that job. I didn't ask for that person. I didn't ask that person now. I didn't ever try to get my book published because I'm not enough. But if you just flip that to, I am enough, just take out the knot, I am enough. And every feeling you feel is different. You feel brave, courageous, reassured, confident, self-assured. And the actions you take, I'm gonna take a risk here. I'm gonna ask that person I'll ask for that promotion, ask for that pay rise, create my own business, find some joint venture people because I'm enough. So it's a loop, thought, feeling, behavior, thought. And so I realized if I could just get all of my clients to say, I am enough as if I'm not enough, and to question, well, why do you think you're not enough? No babies are going, I'm not enough. I haven't got nice clothes on here. I'm I'm sleeping in a box and not a crib. In fact, babies like to be with their parents. They don't care about anything as it being close to you. So no baby's born with that belief. Therefore, it must have been acquired. And anything you acquire, you can let go of it.
1: Mm. Anything you acquire, you can let go of it. I think that's just, of course, we know that, but like we also don't realize that all of these stories are acquired, you know? And so it's like we can always let go. I think of so much of the behavioral adaptations and the coping mechanisms Mm. that we enact to keep us in homeostasis with our own view of ourselves. Self-sabotage is a huge one. Mm. If things start getting too well and I have this perception that I shouldn't be doing that well, then I'm going to sabotage it. So what are some of those ways in which we can insidiously and without even really fully realizing we're doing it, keeping us... Stuck at our level of playing in life?
0: Well, the strongest force in every human being in the world, in you, in me, and all the viewers, is this we must act in a way that matches up how we have chosen to define ourselves. So you're going to act in a way that matches how you have chosen to define you. And self sabotage, procrastination, and nothing more than a different version of I'm not enough, I'm not enough. So if I procrastinate, I never write that book. I never realise it was rubbish anyway. If I never finish my website, I can't be told, oh, it's terrible. So procrastination and self-sabotage are because we're scared of not being enough. And of course, years ago when you were born, you had two drivers, find connection, avoid rejection. That's how you'd survive on the planet.
1: Can you say this to you again?
0: Yeah, so when we're born, we, we have a drive to survive. And how we survive yeah. is by doing two things. Even as a newborn baby, find connection, If you pick up a little baby, it clings onto you because it's finding connection, avoiding rejection. A baby will cry to find connection, avoid rejection, because it wasn't that long ago that rejection would kill you. You know, we used to banish people, cast them out, maroon them, isolate them. And so we knew long ago that survival is a numbers game. And if I'm connected to my tribe, I'll make it. But if I act out and they banish me, well, I'm going to die but we still have this belief, you see, this tribal belief that if you reject me, it will kill me. Because it would have done a thousand years ago. But So you have to go back and go, hey, c- could rejection kill me? Am I listening to these songs saying I'll die if you leave me? I can't live with you. You're the only person who, which is all nonsense. You have to think, okay. Rejection can't kill me. In fact, rejection can be the best thing that ever happened to you. When your first partner dumps you, when your first job fires you, you think, oh, God, I'm so glad that happened because I found something better. I'm so glad that person from school dumped me. I'm so glad I got fired from that job because it propelled me to something more. But you have to first understand the only person who has the power to reject you is you. Someone can say, you're not right for me. I don't love you anymore. But actually, when you look back, you'll think, oh, they did me a favor. So the first thing is to understand that we don't die of rejection and that we have to come to terms with the fact that we have the power to not feel rejected. Just because someone says, oh, I hate, people say to me, I don't like your book. I go, "Well, that's okay. I like it. Most people like it. There's always someone who's, you know, if you write a book, it's on Amazon, you read the reviews, you'll get someone saying, I hate that, I hate that person, I hate their accent, I hate the way they look but I have a choice here. Shall I let that in? Shall I let that ruin my day? I go, well, they're allowed to have an opinion. I don't like everyone's book either. And you have to not take it personally. So I think when you can look back and go, look, I'm not going to die from rejection. I don't need everyone to like me. I need to like me. I need to believe in me. Then you get away from this fear because all of our fears come down to one thing. You could reject me. And that would kill me. If you change, you could reject me, and it'll make me stronger. Look at Eminem. You know he wanted to be a rapper. He was a blonde guy with blue eyes, and he was laughed off the stage again and again, and it made him angry. But he had a belief: you can't reject me. I'm going to put all of that rejection into anger and be a better rapper. And then he became Dr. Dre found him, and he became amazing. But he had to understand that that audience can boo him and be horrible to him, but they can't reject him unless he agrees with them. So if I said to you, well, I don't like you, I don't like anyone with green hair, you would never let that in because it's so clearly untrue. well, I don't have green hair. But if I said I don't like you because you're boring or you have no substance or you're not interesting, you might let that in. But why would you do that? It's just an opinion. So we have to really learn to be good at saying, This is not about me. This is an angry person, a hurt person, a sad person, a critical person. You know, one of my clients who was a critic and had spent ages writing very witty criticisms, like someone wrote a book and he said, this book shouldn't be put down lightly. Indeed, it should be thrown as far away from the unfortunate reader as possible. He was very scathing. But then he wrote his own book and it was slated. And he said, you know, I never realized what I was doing when I wrote my own book and it was slated. I realised what I'd done, thinking it was funny to review books and say this book is original, but the original part isn't funny, and the funny part isn't original. Then you realise that you're hurting people, and of course, hurt people, hurt people. Benevolent people are quite kind and go, "Well, it was parts of it were nice, and I can see you tried really hard." And a, and a supportive editor will say. This is good, but, you know, we're gonna, not going to use that. But you can do better. And they understand how to nurture you, just like a supportive teacher. But we live in a world where there's so much criticism. And just as praise builds you up, criticism withers you. But self-criticism is far worse. You see, if I was horrible to you, go, well, that recipe has had a bad day. She was really mean. She was quite off. Probably had a bad day you could work it out. That person who cut me in line on the motorway, maybe their kid was sick, maybe they were rushing to get home. They probably weren't doing it deliberately. But when you criticize yourself, there's no agenda. You can't say, I'm having a bad day. So you got to be really aware that the fastest way to build yourself up is to upraise up and minimize criticism Mm. minicize you know being down on yourself don't do that constructive criticism is fine like you know i could get there earlier i could make more of an effort i could spend 10 minutes every day planning my day being more organized but the criticism of i'm an idiot i've got rocks or brains everything i do falls apart we've got to really stop doing that culturally and globally because it it's so diminishing
1: it is and gives other people permission to kind of go to that level and that frequency as well. I feel what we're kind of speaking to here is like these emotional triggers when we feel triggered by what somebody says or does, it only kind of really can trigger us to the degree in which we believe it to be true about ourselves anyways. Right. And so if somebody comes up to me and says that you're the most unkind, narcissistic bigot, like I I see that more as a reflection of who they are. And of course you don't want to be so self Um, aggrandizing that you can't like listen to what other people are saying and reflect on whether it's true. But if you believe those things to be, you'll of course be so defensive. And you know, but if you don't, if you know yourself to be a kind, genuine person, then you're not going to be offended by that.
0: And that goes back again to, you know, you make your beliefs and then your beliefs make you. And then you look for proof. It's called confirmation bias. You make a belief, that belief will turn right around and make you. And then you look for proof. So if you say, I'm not very good with people or I'm actually super boring. I've got nothing to say. You've made a belief. Now that belief's going to make you. Now you're going to go out and go, no one spoke to me, you see, because I'm really boring. That person walked away from me in that party because I already knew that I've got nothing to say. So you've got to flip it. I'm interesting. People like me. I like myself because that belief will be. Then you'll look for proof of that. And so... Yeah, we very much react to our beliefs, but we forget that we're a blank slate. Any time you can question a belief, change a belief, upgrade your beliefs by saying, well, why do I believe that? Who told me that? And were they ever true? It's like saying, well, Adele should be super skinny to be um, a number one singer, but she wasn't. And people liked her more for that. And so she didn't have to look like a size zero model to be a performer because she had the voice of an angel but she could have thought oh dear i need to lose a lot of weight and I've, i've got to change so whatever you believe there's someone that'll be total opposite of what you believe you've got to be look at lizzo you've got to be super skinny to be so that's not true anymore the belief you've got to come from talent be a perfect 10 is not true we've got so many people out there who are different who are making it we now i love the fact we now have disabled models, we have it's that girl I love who has the impetigo all over mm-hmm. her body, you know who yeah. I mean?
1: Yeah, yeah, No, you're talking about
0: Yeah, and there's another girl um, th- there's a girl with Down syndrome in the UK who's been on the cover of Vogue so whatever you believe I think it's it Chantal Brown, I think that's her name. I'm
1: not the right person And ask, then but, yeah.
0: Rupert Friend's wife is another girl she has no lower limbs, but that's an interesting, nowadays people with blades are running faster than than runners so the belief that I'm disabled. We've got so many great things out there now to give disabled people the same chance to run, to walk, to move. So when you have this belief that I'm less than, take a look at someone else who's made it and think, oh, wow, that belief isn't even true. Again, you've got to challenge your beliefs. And the thing I find really damages people, it might help your audience a lot, is that when we're born on the planet, when we're little babies, we only really have four needs, and our need is to be safe, loved, significant, and connected. That's all a little baby needs. If I'm safe and connected, maybe my mum isn't here, but the the babysitter will look after me because I'm safe, connected, significant. Loved is important. And that's all a baby needs. I need to feel safe, safe that you're not going to walk away from me, connected so you're going to meet my needs, loved and significant. And as we get older, we have those needs our entire life, but we have a few more as well as safe, loved, connected, we need to feel seen and heard, celebrated, have someone who's proud of us and feel that we matter. And what happens is for many of us, those needs are not met at all. Our parents are busy, we we go to when we feel different, and when our needs are not met, two things happen, only two – the first is we give the need up. I'm never going to find love. I tried, I got ghosted so many times. I'm never going to feel I matter. I've been fired from every job. And eventually we just think, okay, that's it then. I'm not going to try anymore. I'm going to live at home with my cats and I'm just going to have a job that doesn't demand anything. And then I'm not going to have these needs. So we give up the belief that these needs are going to be met. The other group do something else. They, they give the need away. they go like, okay, I'm going to find someone. They're going to meet all these needs. They're going to make me feel safe and loved and amazing. And I'm going to go through their phone and check all the time. I'm going to say to my boss, am I good enough? Are you sure? Did you like this? So we become very needy. We give the needs. Hey, someone out there, I don't really care who, is going to turn up and meet all my needs. So I'm going to give the need up. I'm going to give the need away. But neither of those things work. What works is to okay. Let me go through those needs again. I need to feel safe, connected, loved, significant, seen and heard, praised. Can I do that myself? Can I every day, hey, I'm safe to express my feelings. I've got something to offer the world. I'm lovable just the way I am. Because when you start to meet those needs yourself just by sitting and saying, I do matter, I am lovable, I am significant, of course, I can celebrate myself. I can be seen and heard. I can believe I've got something to offer the world. When you do that, it's the opposite of needy. And we can all do it, no matter how weird it seems. Just go through those needs and keep saying, I am doing a stellar job of meeting those needs. I'm doing a brilliant job, an amazing job. And then instead of turning up in the world as needy, you turn up in the world as self-assured. Because confidence is very reassuring. It's also very sexy. So you've got to think, okay, it's isn't anyone else's job to meet my needs. It's my job. It's no one else's job to make you happy. It's your job. Someone no else's job to make you feel amazing. It's your job. And that's good because you can do that job better than anyone else.
1: One of those needs that really stuck out is uh, especially within the masculine, but within all of humanity runs that, the, the need to be significant. Yeah. And that, especially in the personal development world and in industry, there is this constant mm. harping on self-improvement. And you're speaking to a deeper level of, transformation in your life that comes through sure. self-acceptance mm. and so that's a, I feel like a really interesting thing to once you find profound self- self-acceptance self in your yeah. reality then your life will have actually improve so much
0: <laughs> yeah because you think the opposite of significant is So I felt so insignificant mm. I was made to feel that I just didn't matter and the truth is of course you matter you're here mm. even if your parents didn't want you somebody wanted you to be here And here you are, and there's someone that wanted you to be here, gave you talents and skills of your own. So when you feel insignificant, you can do some work and going, hey, just every day, if you just did this one thing, if every day you woke up and said, I matter, I'm significant, I'm lovable, I'm enough. If you just said that every day, wrote it on your mirror, said it when you cleaned your teeth, said it over breakfast, and if you have kids, make them say it too that small shift will change your entire life. Because when you state it, if I'm embody it, I matter, I'm significant, I'm lovable, I'm enough, you're making a thought. And guess what? Your body not only has to make it real, it's starting to look for proof of why it's real. Hmm. And whatever your mind looks through, it will find.
1: So I want to talk a little bit more about these affirmation words because I feel like it can be kind of referred to in the personal development world as... It feels almost like a little empty, like almost to say like I'm worthy, I'm I'm enough, I'm enough, I'm enough, you almost have to believe that you're not there to, yeah. to say it. And so obviously if you charge that with emotion, mm. then it becomes transformative. Mm-hmm. Um so what do you think about the efficacy and the futility of affirmations?
0: See, I don't use affirmations, I use statements of truth. I much prefer statements of truth. So mm. if I said every, if I had a kid and every day I made my kid say, I'm enough, I matter. I'm lovable and I'm significant, no one's gonna go, well, that's not true. Your kid doesn't matter, they're not enough, they're insignificant. So those particular statements are true. And you can argue against, but you can also argue for them. And so an affirmation, affirmations are great, but there's an affirmation here every day and everyone getting better and better at what? Having tension headaches. It's so ambiguous, it's so fluffy. It's every day in every way, I'm getting better and better. You can get better and better at shoplifting if you want to. So you want to be very aware that when you present something to the mind, if it doesn't make sense, it becomes senseless. You could say every day I'm getting attention again for what? Explosive gas. You you've got to be very clear. So the statement of truth is every day I feel lovable, and I find people who notice I am loved. Every day I'm enough. And everyone else is enough, but every day I'm just saying, I am enough. Because how could you argue against that? It's true. So statements of truth are rather different because you can't really argue against them. So let's say we said the statement of truth, I'm lovable. You can say, but you're not really. Because look, you know, you're a bit heavy. You haven't got any hair. You've got acne. But actually, go. But so what? I'm still lovable. With all of the, with missing hair, missing limbs, I'm still lovable. So statements of truth are different to affirmations because they're harder to argue against. You might say, well, yeah, I'm saying I matter, but I don't really matter. But you can matter to yourself and you can matter to someone. So statements of truth are better than affirmations because you pick words that cannot really be undone. Hmm. So if you said, I'm lovable, someone might say, you're not really, but you're lovable to your cats, to your pets. You can always find someone or something that loves you. And if you act in a lovable manner, then you'll feel lovable.
1: Yeah, it feels like it's not just the words, but the place it's coming from, yeah, the, the, the state of consciousness. Yeah, the place it's coming from, yeah. I find it really fascinating. About like six or seven years ago, I did this experiment actually, and um, Masaru Moto, who's done a lot of, like research and the study of the structure of water and how mm-hmm. the words and oh, the yes. energy Oh I music. love
0: that experiment. So
1: I took basically these three bowls of rice and I put I love you in front of one, I hate you in front of the other, and then nothing in yeah. front of the third one. And every single morning and every single night for 60 seconds, my roommate Luke and I would go and spend, just send and think sure. loving thoughts towards the loving one, yeah. hateful thoughts towards the second one, the third one we just ignored. After four days, and I'll put up images if I can mm. find them on the screen, if you're watching on YouTube and Spotify, But the I love you one was perfectly fine, almost just like we said, it was just rice and water. And the second one, I hate you, was like getting black and moldy. Mm. And fascinating enough, the third one was actually the worst. Yeah, The one that we were completely ignoring. Yeah, Yeah. that's so interesting.
0: Because our greatest fear is to be ignored. Because Mm. again, if you're ignored, you're insignificant, you don't matter, you don't feel enough, you don't feel lovable. You do that with water, you can also do it with plants. You can go to a plant and go, I love you, I hate you. And the one you hate, will start to wither you can actually if you listen to a recording of you being applauded and then of being booed the being booed really people react very badly to that indeed because it's rejection Mm. and the clapping is acceptance but of course again you have to come back to the fact can I applaud myself can I believe in myself can I sort of saying okay I I need to hear these words who's going to give them to me well you Happiness is an inside job. If you want to hear that you matter, you could say to someone, hey, can you make me feel something? They go, sure, I can tell you you matter. But They can also manipulate you into doing it. Or they could say, actually, I'm off now. I found someone else. You did matter, but I've replaced you, which is the worst feeling for humans to be replaced. But if you can do it yourself, then No one can, you know, no one can ever take that away. When you fall in love with yourself, it's a lifetime of love. It never wanes, it never disappoints you, it never says, you're disappointing me. So we have to really, I mean, the word responsible means an ability to respond. Responsibility means an ability to respond. So you've got to respond to your own neediness, And it doesn't mean when you meet your needs, you become us. It means that you elevate your sense of self-worth, self-value, self-image and self-esteem and the whole world will join you at that elevated level. But Mm. you can't say to someone, hey, could you make me feel good? Sure they could for a while, maybe for a long time, but then they have their own issues. When you go, okay, I'm going to make myself feel good and then I can go to the world and be around other people who feel good without ever thinking oh, they're doing their job, maybe what if they don't want that job and I'm going to go back to being that person who can't meet their own needs. So it's it's very empowering when you can start to give yourself what you want. You wouldn't go to someone, hey, who out there is going to feed me? I need to be fed. Someone's going to you go, well, I have to feed myself. Hmm. I can nourish myself with words. It's like I nourish myself with food. So if you could all teach people, that's why I have so many schools, having the kids of five, zero, I'm enough, I matter, I'm significant, I'm loveable, they say it, state it, they write little plaques for their desk, they do pictures and drawings of it, and what they're doing is becoming self-sufficient at managing their emotions rather than telling someone else is going to have to do it for me
1: yeah it feels like it requires for people earlier on their journey kind of more jet fuel like as a plane takes off to to get you to that state where then you don't have to use them as much because it becomes your way of being, yeah like with those with the example of those studies or like with plants and and mm. affirmations, I mean we're seventy percent water give of or take, course. so imagine what is happening to yeah. humans and you know people during that that process. I'm curious for you to share a little bit more about how you know often our greatest gifts and superpowers in life come mm. through our greatest challenges. And so for your personal journey and your personal story, what was like one or two pivotal moments that kind of led you down this path of sharing yourself in this way?
0: I think for me, it was a realization that nobody could reject me unless I gave them permission. So of course, I went out on a limb. I wrote books. I created programs. I created the I'm Enough movement. I put RTT into schools. I did some challenges. And people would say, but you're not a doctor. I go, yeah, lucky for me because a doctor is looking for broken limbs, of course. They're looking for diseased organs. I'm looking for diseased thinking. And 70% of people turning up at the doctors don't have diseased organs. They have diseased thinking. And so I had to learn when someone would say, well, who are you to do this? It's like, well, who am I not to do it? Someone's got to do it. And so of course, you'll always get critics. There's always going to be critics. But the trick is to not let that in and to carry on. You know, I always say your past is like a bow and you're the arrow. And when you fire an arrow, the arrow goes, the bow doesn't come with it. The bow's left. No one says, where's the bow? They just go and get the arrow. The arrow has gone very far. So we have to think that we're the arrow. And our past is the bow. And when we move forwards, the bow isn't coming with us. The bow is our childhood, our critical teachers, the things we didn't mess up. But nobody cares about the bow. They only care about the arrow. So see yourself as the arrow moving forwards and leaving the past behind, which is your bow. Or think of your life as like a massive clock like that. And if your life was a clock, your childhood is the first seven minutes. You've got 53 minutes left. To be amazing, to be free, to be empowered. And it's a choice to go, well, but you see, I didn't have a dad, my mum, I was a mistake. I should have been a boy, should have been a girl, should have been an architect. Again, you've got 53 more minutes to just let all of that go. You're you. And you can be whatever you want to be and do whatever you want to do if you just leave the past behind. We have all these crazy stories like your school days are the best days of your life, but they're not. You don't get to choose what to eat, what to wear, what to study, or it's all downhill once you go, but it isn't. It's amazing. So if you tell yourself school days are the best days, when we'll I say, Oh God, my school days were awful, I was bullied, I was I couldn't read, I had dyslexia, it was horrible. For some of us, it's amazing. But if it's amazing, then the rest of it all feels a bit disappointing. So if it wasn't good, you think, well, that's good, isn't it? Because it can only be better. Hmm. So you're going to learn to reframe your thoughts, your beliefs, reframe everything, and it will change your entire life, but not just for a little while, but for for all of your life.
1: There's so much power in you reminding people that with through conscious intention you can heal yourself and I know in your own personal journey you've been through some really difficult things through cancer through your leg getting run over by a car and for everybody that's listening to this right now right everybody is going through something that often nobody sees
0: yeah and so
1: how did you in those examples really command yourself to heal
0: well, man, the first thing that happened to me when I was about 25, I was told I could never have children. I was told you'll never be able to conceive a child, never carry a child to full term. And even if you could do that, you'd have a child that was handicapped. And it was amazing. I remember this little voice in my head said, don't let any of that in. And I realized then how important it was to not let that And a doctor can give you a diagnosis, of course. That's their job, but my job is to decide what to do about it. And that little voicing didn't then stood me in very good stead for my entire life. So I did go on to get pregnant very easily. I was told throughout it, oh, the baby's going to have anything. And I had a perfect child. I mean, she was healthy, robust, nearly eight pounds. And I realized then that reinforced how important it is that I must have agency over my thinking. It's not a doctor. It's I have agency over what goes into my head. And many years later, my daughter was grown up when I was told I had cancer, and it was interesting because I just couldn't believe I had cancer. I was so healthy, but I went to the doctors, and I said, "Well, it came back." And she, she did this. She went, "It has your address." It's very loud, is it? She went. <laughs> has your address. It knows where you live. It's probably going to... And I thought, what an awful thing to say. It knows your address. The cancer? It's going to come back. Yeah, she said, it has your address. It knows where you live. It's probably going to come back. And I thought, gosh, this is a very nice doctor, but what kind of training is that to say that I'm not letting that in? And so, again, it was the decision to not let it in and to think, okay, now it's up to me. And I was very lucky because I had, I think you call it endometrial cancer or uterine cancer. I thought, well, it's a stroke of luck because I don't need a womb. I've already had a child. And, of course, they'd say things like, well, you know, we're going to take the womb out, but some of the cancer cells might spill out and then it can travel to your liver. So I imagine that my womb was wrapped in cling film that had a fortress. And then when they took it out, it was all gone. So it's like I had it and then I didn't have it because – They just took my womb away. It was an organ I didn't need. I had no more use for it. But so even when you get a terrible diagnosis, you still have a choice. What am I going to do with this? I'm going to go, my God, this is terrible. I'm going to die. Should I think, well, can I do anything about this? Can I change anything about it? Can I change how I feel about it? And I look at many people who've had this and are still thriving and surviving and of course that's always a choice isn't it there are people who've had cancer for 50 years and they're living an amazing life and because of course whatever you look for you're going to find what you focus on you get more so I could focus on wow I've got that and it's all over I could focus well I've got that but I don't have to have it for long and I can talk to my body and tell it to repair itself because the body is very good at making natural killer cells that fight cancer. So I use a lot of imagine, visual, visualizing and imagining stuff. And, of course, when I got run over, same thing happened. My doctor said, you wouldn't want to walk for six months. But that was so boring for me. <laughs> I decided to hear six weeks. He we said six months. It's so funny. The other day, I looked at him and said, Marissa Peer. And I thought they said he's a grafter. I thought they said I was a grifter. But when I read it, I thought this is Marissa I thought, well, that's nice. I'm a grafter. Because a grafter, <laughs> I realized it said she's a grifter. But I didn't let it in. I mean, that's what they think I am. But I know that's not true. So when he said six months, in my head, I decided to hear six weeks. And I would... Literally talk to my right foot, this foot, and command it, compel it, direct it, instruct it to heal quickly. And I created this technique called Dick Healing, and it means direct, instruct, code, compel, command, and condition your body. Why did you call it that word? It's because everyone remembers it. <laughs> everyone remembers what Dick Healing is. It's a great energy. It's a great healing, and it's been amazing. And actually. Last week in Mexico, I you know, I watched the interviews and I healed myself mm. of all kinds of painters. just am listening to you saying I direct, instruct, command, compel, and code my left foot to heal and look exactly like the right. All the ligaments, all the bones. Because what's happening is, again, I'm thinking a thought, but my body has to make that thought real. It's not like it has a choice. So when you think about healing, which is why healing is, so when you think about, okay, my skin is healing, I've got amazing, I've got a great immune system. In COVID was, oh God, there's no line of defense, but there is, it's called your immune system. And if you believe I've got a great immune system, a phenomenal, dependable, reliable, enviable immune system, then your mind has no choice. It has to make that real. So, of course, when you're saying, oh, my immunity is rubbish, I've got a terrible immune, I get every cold going, if I look at um, uncooked meat, I get sick straight away, then, of course, you're also making it real. And so, for me, it was a choice to think better thoughts. I knew that my body must make my thoughts real, so I knew that it was my job to not go, oh, my God, I got run over. It was terrible. I was thinking, well... Actually, it was quite lucky. I got run over in London, right outside my house. or my family there. I had medical insurance. I'd just come back from Peru. Thank God I wasn't run over there. I took all the good things about being run over. I got loads of time off. It was actually fine. And actually, one of the great things about being run over was that my doctor said, you've got to have to really use heavy weights now to build up your muscle. And I became addicted to heavy weights before I was really into yoga. And now I love heavy weights. I'm really into pushing myself. And I thought, well, I wouldn't have done that if I hadn't been run over. So I found an extra joyful something that I'm now completely addicted to. So you you can always look for something good in anything because whatever you look for, you're going to find, look for how awful it is, how terrible, how annoying, or look for what's good in it.
1: Yeah, I've heard you share about just how, because I think body image is a big thing, especially with women, yeah. especially with social media and this highlight reel in comparison. Mm. I've heard you share that the only way to have a body you love is to love the body that you have. Yeah. And so shifting that perception of any event like you spoke yeah. to, but then also of self and of your ob- own body, Um. you know, it's it feels like very... It's like very slippery, insidious. The ego has like all these traps in which we're kind of, we have all this negative self-talk like we talked to earlier, mm. and it's almost outside of the realm of awareness most of the time. It's just kind of a happy I know,
0: and it's such a sad thing that people are really down on their body. It's like, I hate my legs, I hate my arms, I hate my thighs, I hate my stomach. Because like your body is the most mind-boggling thing you'll ever own in your entire life. And you should celebrate with that, that you've got it. I'd be so grateful. So if you want a beach body, well take your body to the beach and you've got a beach body right there and then. But, you know, what is a beach body? And you've got to get beach body ready and summer ready and party season ready. But if you could just stop and think, wow, I have this priceless thing called a body. And if I could just love it and respect it and appreciate it, it would be entirely different because you think, okay, I love this body. I'm not eating a donut for breakfast because that's not love. That's hateful. So um, I'm a food lover. Go, no, darling, you're a food abuser. Eating pizza and ice cream and donut and cake is not loving food. It's abusing food. But if you start off with, wow, I've got this priceless thing. And if you just do a few nice things for your body, really simple, hydrate, put more healthy stuff in move a little bit and get enough sleep. If you just do those four things, your body will do 404 things back. So it becomes this very symbiotic relationship where if you love the body you have, it will become lovable to you because you will do it with respect rather than disdain. And you know, you're never gonna get anywhere by hating yourself
1: you know, that perception of self, how we feel about ourselves as we move yeah. through the world. I've also heur- heard you share how our feelings are essentially the, the images in our head and the yeah. words that we use.
0: Yeah, the way you feel about everything. And I do mean everything is only ever down to two things. The pictures you make in your head and the words you say to yourself, that's it. But those pictures are yours to change. The words are yours to change. So if the way you feel about everything is down to the pictures and words, like when people say things like, oh, you know, look at that, I'm just hurtling through the air on a tin tube. You know, then, of course, that will make you feel uncomfortable. It's like saying I'm hurtling through the freeway. No one says I'm driving through on a tin tube, a little. But we're so scared of flying, but it's actually safer than being in a car. But again, it's the pictures we make. I'm going to fail the air, I'm going to fall apart, I'm going to go bright red, I'm going to lose my shit. We create these terrible pictures and words to really just describe something so simple like, being in the line in the store buying groceries, being on the freeway going to work, going on a date with someone new—we we talk ourselves out of it, and we all have a brilliant brain. When you have a brilliant brain, which everyone has, you got to talk—you can talk yourself into or out of anything. So, you got to think: Am I talking myself into stress, or can I talk myself? Am I talking myself into failing or out of? It? Am I talking myself into succeeding or failing? Because it comes right back to the pictures you're making. And the words you're forming, which are yours to change and upgrade all the time.
1: Hmm. If we're always attracting, you know, what we feel we're we're worthy of and oftentimes what we desire is kind of unfamiliar to us, right? We haven't yet experienced it. If what we desire is continually in that space of the unknown, mm-hmm. you know, why do we continually cling to what is familiar and how do you help people step beyond mm. just what is known?
0: That's such a good question. You know, what was familiar kept you alive. If you have a two-year-old kid, imagine you live out in the prairie with a two-year-old and they only eat what they know. So when they go out on their own and they see bushes or berries, they only eat what they know. And the familiar kept you alive. If you lived in a fort, you wouldn't go, I'm so bored. With them, so I'm gonna, I want to go meet those Native Americans over there because that wouldn't be safe. So what was safe was what was familiar and known and comfortable. So we stay in our comfort zone. And, of course, if you see a tour, they go, I don't want that because I like pink yogurt in that white bowl with that blue spoon. And the minute you try to give them orange, yoga, the yellow, but they don't want it. That's only because it's unfamiliar, but that's what kept you alive, the same old, same old. So now it is actually a very vexing fact for most doctors and therapists that the brain is hardwired to only want what it knows. It's hardwired to avoid unfamiliar, to move back to familiar. But even though that's the truth, here's another truth. You can make anything you like familiar. After all, if you put a silicone on your finger and shove it in your eye, how unfamiliar is that? I mean, I tried lenses. I put them in my, my, my mind, to, literally went, WTF, what is that? Get it out of my eye. And my eye was watering. But eventually I could put that in without a mirror. I could take it off like that, which is super weird. To squeeze your own eyeball with, with nails is very unfamiliar. But if you use lenses all the time, it's familiar. So it is absolute fact that the mind wants what is familiar. But here's another fact, you can make anything you like familiar. And if you want to learn that start by praising yourself. The best thing you make familiar is praise. If you make self-praise familiar, it will change your life so powerfully. And then you can make stuff like going to the gym familiar or, you know, juicing or taking sugar out of your coffee which feels weird, but if you do it you think, "Oh, I can't believe i drank that stuff. It now tastes disgusting. So we have a choice. Let's make good stuff familiar and known and negative stuff, unfamiliar and unknown. So if you make criticism unfamiliar and praise familiar, you will win at life if that's all you ever do. Mm. And I really recommend you do that. Mm.
1: What's an example of somebody making praise familiar?
0: So many years ago I worked with this very, very famous director who came to my house and I happened to tell him how much I loved this movie he said it was terrible didn't you notice it was misguided no I loved it got an Oscar he said well there were no good nominations that year I said but I also remember your second film he said there were even worse nominations I said oh you can't let in praise no wonder you're here with chronic depression you cannot let in praise I'm going to say to you I love that film, and I want you to say thank you. I love making it. You think I'd ask him to dig a needle in his face because he found it very hard to say that. But I said, You've you got to make this familiar. You know, the depression that you're seeking help for is nothing more than that you cannot hear good stuff about yourself. What to do with his childhood, where he was diminished all the time and his parents were horrible to him. But then he began to say, Thank you so much. I loved making that movie. It gave so many people pleasure. It got an Oscar and he it was hard for him, but he kept repeating it because, of course, it's not really hard. It's like if you go to hug someone, they go, oh, I don't like being hugged, that's hard. And they go, no, it's not hard. It's unfamiliar. I was teaching, actually, and one of the girls I was working with, she had an awful, awful life. And at the end, I said, everyone's going to come up and hug you. She goes, oh, no, no, it's very hard for me. I said, no, it's not. It's unfamiliar. Mm-hmm. And at the end, she said, Marissa, why isn't the cameraman hugging me? And what about the sound man? I said, yeah, get in line. You see how quickly you made that familiar? And so it's not hard. And if you can say it's unfamiliar, being praised is unfamiliar, being hugged, is being loved is unfamiliar, being noticed is unfamiliar. But I can make it familiar. You can make anything familiar, anything. If you lifted weights or had tattoos, if you shove a needle in, you know, I, um, when I had cancer, I had to inject myself in the stomach every day. And I hated that. But after a few weeks, I could just do it while I was watching TV because, because it was every day, it became familiar. Hmm. And in the end, it didn't even bother me. I was sitting in the airport once, just whacking myself in the stomach before I got on a plane. People were looking at me. And I was like, oh yes, I should do that secretly. They're going, why are you doing that? So oh, it's a blood thinning thing. It's nothing really, because it was nothing, but you can make, you see, people who work out, people who run, people who juice, they just make it familiar. People who study. People who say, I never watched TV and was studying. People who learn a language. If, if I went to Spain and never spoke to an English person, watched Spanish TV, within months that would be familiar. I'd start to understand it because it's not hard. It's a question of make good stuff familiar. And while you're making good stuff, being down on yourself, criticizing yourself, make that unfamiliar. That's really the, the easiest way to change your entire life, make drinking water when you wake up familiar, do a few lunges while the kettle's boiling, do a few crunches, put some green stuff into your diet. It, it, it's all you have to do. Mm. It's we, we think change is so hard, but actually you get to change twice every single day of your life. The first is to change a thought, and then that will change a behavior. What Instead of saying, what have I forgotten, what have I remembered? Start to think about good stuff. Hmm. So change isn't hard. Change is actually easy, and you're changing every day anyway. And we just fear change because we haven't realized that if you can change – if you can control the direction of change, if you don't fear, people say to me, "Well, how do you feel about getting older? It's better than the alternative, don't you think? I mean, isn't that a good thing? You're getting old, but what's the alternative? Dying young? So, you know, there's a great saying. When you change, I think Wayne Dyer was Wayne Dyer said, "When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. So, think about getting older. What does that mean? And isn't it better than the alternative? Think about." being with someone as opposed to being alone. Think people say, oh, my kids are leaving home and now I'm feeling terrible. But you've done a great job. If they were handicapped, they'd never leave home. Haven't you done a great job? They're leaving home. They're going to college. You've done your job because I've got empty nest. I was no, you haven't. You've got inability to adapt syndrome. (laughs) There's no such thing as emptiness. There are people with handicapped kids. They would love to have an empty nest. They would be elated if their kid was going out, having sex, getting married, traveling the world, but their kid's never going to get out of the bed. So again, when you think, oh, I can't cope with my kid leaving home, think, is there somebody who'd say, I'll take that? oh, that's my fantasy dream. I have a handicapped kid here and I'd love to have your problem. So every time you can think, is there someone who'd like my problem? Is there someone who said, I'd love that problem? What I've given for that problem, then you're always reframing and realizing that it's your perspective that's making you unhappy. It's not the event. You can never change events. You can always change how you feel about the event.
1: That reframing into gratitude has to be one of the most powerful practices to oh, continually yeah. and make it a default, right? Because yeah. you can make that familiar just like you can make pessimism familiar, yeah. and so often many people yeah. do. so
0: grateful. And people say, oh, I'm getting older. Well, be grateful you're getting older. Be thrilled you're going to be gra- glad that you have the opportunity to get older. Hmm. You know, every st- Goethe said every stage is a dream that's dying or one that's coming to birth. And I thought that's such a beautiful statement because that's true. Every stage is a dream that's dying or something brand new that's just being born. Mm.
1: Yeah, beginnings often hide themselves and ends in that way. Yeah, a
0: lot of people will say, I got fired, I got dumped. We'll say a little, wow. I didn't realize, thank God my first wife left me because I found my new wife. Thank God I got fired because I found a better job. Thank God. You know, one of my friends, she had, I think, six rounds of IVF and then adopted a little girl and so she said, I'm so glad they all failed because I was meant to be her mother and she was meant to be my daughter. When I met her, I knew immediately that we were meant for each other. So, was isn't that a great read from She never said, oh, I wish those pregnant had gone to full terms." She said, no, they were meant to fail because I was meant to find her. And she was meant to find me. And that's such a beautiful reframe.
1: Mm. Yeah, I was talking to a friend who just was building this massive business and was feeling overwhelmed. And I shared, I said something like, nothing is inherently stressful. No. And it's like that simple perception shift yeah. changes everything as you uh, you know, encounter something that you once thought was stressful, yeah. you reframe it into how this could be happening for me instead of just to me. And um, in that process, you're reframing what is familiar to you. Another big thing that people can do is to change who they're surrounded by. Because oh, yeah. if you're around four or five other people consistently and they're always, what's familiar to them is this poverty mm. mindset, then you're, it's going to rub off on you. It's kind of inevitable. So uh, how important do you feel like it is to surround yourself with people who frame what you want?
0: totally influenced by the company you keep massively influenced by the company you keep sometimes you have to think you know just like we have starter homes you can have starter or even starter marriages. marriage you think oh i've got this home and it was great but i've outgrown it now and i think it's okay to say i've outgrown these people i grew up with you know i go back to my village tiny little village in cambridge it's lovely but a lot of the people i went to they still live there and they they think that's wonderful to have never gone any further but for me, I just needed a much bigger, broader life. It doesn't mean that they were wrong and I was right, but it meant it was the right thing for me to leave all that company behind and find a completely different life. Mm. But we're very influenced by the company we keep. And if the company you keep is dragging you down and limiting you, then you should let go because you can't find new horizons while clinging to the shore. You got know, the, the most important words in the world are let go. Let go of things that get in your way. Let go of things that hold you to the past. Let go of people that maybe aren't right for you. You know, when I was raising my daughter alone, I had a group of friends, all single mothers, and they were really supportive and it was lovely. But I realized later that some of them were very negative about, you know, men. and they And, and I didn't share their beliefs. And as my daughter got older, I just gradually removed myself from that group because I decided it was a bit negative. And it was, it for me, it was negative. And then I wasn't a single parent anymore. I got married and I was very happy and I still saw them a little bit. But, you know, people think, oh, that's really awful. You're cutting someone out of your life, but you're not. You're just finding a new horizon. Mm. You have to let go of the past to embrace the future. Many people hold on, they hold on to so much stuff and it just weighs you down. So. Mm should let go of anything that doesn't serve you in the nicest, kindest way. You know, if I want, I can think of one particular mother who was so negative and I just eventually, when I stopped replying to her invitations, I took the energy out of it. It's like if you're playing tennis and you put down your racket, you can't continue the game, can you? So I just decided, you know, she's a great person, but not, she's not my person. So I just gradually removed myself from that relationship, kindly and nicely and slowly, because... I couldn't be around that negativity anymore.
1: It's a potent reminder. Terrence McKenna has that quote that I've referenced a bunch on this podcast of saying, this is how magic is done by hurling yourself into the abyss and realizing it's a feather bed. Letting go, Mm. that clinging onto the shore to discover new horizons There's such a profound level of joy that comes online when you feel that life knows what it's doing. Yeah. And I'm curious for you, like in your 20s and 30s, would you have even ever possibly imagined a life that is good as it is? When
0: I was 20, I couldn't have ever imagined like living in LA, being blissfully, happily married, having an amazing child, having, I mean, that was so far out of my remit. I just couldn't even imagine it. But that's a good thing that you can't imagine how your life is going to change, but it changes dramatically. And again, it's that, I mean, I wouldn't change any of my childhood now because it made me who I am, even the hard bits, even the lonely bits, even the feeling really different because my dad was my principal. But that gave me a great understanding of human behavior. And again, it's, you know, then when I when I had cancer, I decided I was going to go home the next day and I did because I didn't want to do wellness. I, want illness. I wanted to do wellness. When they said, you should stay for a week, I said, oh, know, I'm going home. I knew I'd go home immediately. I went in, I think on a Thursday night. I went home on a Friday morning and I said, oh, this is good. In my home, I'm doing wellness, not illness. And they keep saying, you know, do you want pain? I said, no, because I'm not in pain. I'm in discomfort totally different. And that's a reframe. If I'm in pain, I need lots of If I'm discomfort, I just need to get super comfortable on my couch, watch a great movie, have my friends over. So it's up to us to reframe everything. Don't say I'm in pain, chronic pain, even the word my, my migraine, my cancer, my headache, my eczema. When you call something my, you own it. It's a little subtle shifts like changing pain to discomfort, changing the word my to the, there's lots of little reframes you can do every day. Mm. So, you know, years ago, somebody was talking about her ex-husband. She you said, know, oh, he's such a bastard. My ex. I said, well, when did you get... It was 35 years ago. I said, darling, I don't think he's yours. Th- you still call him my ex after 35 years? Is he remarried? Yes. Are you? No. I said, you know why? Because you're calling him my, my ex. My. I said, he's not yours. He hasn't been yours for 35 years. Call him the... And in the, you'll have a level of indifference because the opposite of hate is not love. It's complete and utter indifference. And he's disinterested in you. Why don't you do the same? Within 18 months, she found someone else because she just had to do a tiny reframe. Stop calling something mine that you don't want to have. My dermatitis, my eczema, my tension headaches, my seasonal flu, um, stop calling it mine. That's a really simple, We call it the and it'll probably go away forever.
1: Hmm. Another thing that you recommend is kind of reframing uh, instead of having a future-based proposition and saying, I want something one day in the future, yeah. you always speak into it as the present um, tense. Yeah,
0: yeah. Because that's the thing, one of the things about the mind is it doesn't know what the present tense is. Like when you take your kid on a plane, and the after future they tense. Go, are they there? Yeah. Are we there now? You know, you get your kid in the car to drive 400 miles, they go, we're there after five minutes. Because the subconscious mind doesn't know, that. only knows now, it doesn't know the future. Which is why you can't say, next year I'll find love, next year I'll lose weight. It's why you can't say to a kid who's bullied next year, go to a different school or a different class because the mind works entirely in the present tense. And when you start to go next year, it, it means nothing. You have to say now, you know, I'm acquiring that now. I'm getting that now. I'm doing that now. It's like, think as if you're already abundant. So if you want to be wealthy rather than say, well, you know, I live in a horrible apartment, I haven't got a car, I haven't even got my own bathroom. You need to start saying, I'm, I live in a wealthy state of mind, I, I live surrounded by riches, I'm an abundant person. You do not even have to mention money. I was a single parent. and I would always say to my daughter, we're so wealthy, we're so rich, we have everything, because we did. We had heating, we had a home, but I never mentioned money. But I always brought her up to think, we have wealth, Abundance. We have everything. We're so lucky. We're so gifted. We're so blessed, and it is the state of mind. You know, I was coming home in a taxi last summer, and the taxi driver said to me, he "said I've got the best job in the world." He said, "I finish work every day at three, and I go home and sit in the garden with my lovely wife and my grandchildren." And come He says "It's the best job ever because I work my own hours." Isn't that amazing? This taxi driver's talking like he's a millionaire, but in his head, he was because he worked his own hours. And he had to tell me about his lovely garden, his beautiful wife and his great-grandchildren that came to visit every day they came after school because he always finished at three. So he had an abundant mindset. You might think, but he was driving a cab, but he felt totally wealthy because he had everything he wanted because everything you want in life without questions because how it makes you feel. And he drove a cab because it made him feel free. You could say, I feel so trapped. I'm stuck in traffic, can't make enough money. But if you understand everything, everything you want in life without questions because of how it makes you feel. And the trick is, can I get the feeling? If I want to be, can I feel like a millionaire? Can I feel wealthy? Can I feel blessed? Can I feel gifted? Can I feel grateful? You always want to get the feeling you get if you had the thing. If I won the lottery, how would I feel? Well, I don't know, you probably would feel free, empowered, but 70% of lottery winners are bankrupt in three years. So what does that tell you? It's not even the money, it's how you feel about it. And some people feel really bad about it. They think I didn't earn it. And I've got all this jealousy. You know, one of my clients, he lived in a little, um, we call it a council estate in England. I think you'd call it um, project housing here. And he said, you know, when I won the lottery, it was so awful because they said, well, you can't stay in this house because this is a house of people with no income, so you've got to move. And he said, I love that community, but I've got a big house. I didn't fit in, and I'd go back to my old community. And if we went to the pub and I bought all the drinks, I go, there you go, showing off again. But if I didn't buy the drinks to go, oh we've got to pay for our own drinks, aren't you a millionaire now? He says, and no, I got everything wrong. I lost all that money and I was so happy. I ended up back in the projects, back in the factory, and I was happy. Because for him, he didn't see the change as a change, he saw it as a change for the worse. So Again, you have to take control of the direction of change in your life and always say, okay, I'm making this change for the better. But no one taught him how to do that, and so he got rid of all of it. Mm. And he didn't like it. Was So if having money is unfamiliar, you'll get rid of it. But actually, if having love is unfamiliar, you know what? You'll get rid of that too. People reject love if they've never had it because it makes them feel vulnerable. They reject money because it makes them feel unfamiliar. So you have to sit with it in Mckang and make this familiar. Hmm. And that too is an absolute life changer.
1: For an in- individuals that are experiencing homelessness, for example, could have still the same limiting belief of not feeling enough, the same as somebody And you know you work with incredible athletes and royalty and very prestigious individuals that could have similar limiting beliefs. Yeah. How they coped with it, maybe one got rich, one mm. stayed small. But I'm curious your work with, you know, some some of the most impactful and influential individuals in the world. Can you share about how these perceptions of self and limiting beliefs still hold true all the way up?
0: <laughs> yeah, I see a lot of people who are billionaires, millionaires, CEOs and they have this belief I'm not really worth it. You know, this is a bit of a fate. One day someone's going to turn up and realize that I didn't I didn't deserve, especially if they inherit wealth or they inherit a business, they always have that feeling they're gonna be found out. They have that not enoughness still. So there are, I put my clients into three groups. There's one group, a tiny percentage, and they have everything, like the Richard Branson of the world. They have it, they love it, they feel they're worth it, and they share it. They don't have any problems, like I've got this, everyone else has benefited from me having it, but they're, they're what I call the one percenters. So they have a belief that I can have everything, And other people will benefit, and it's a good thing. The second group have this belief that no one can have it all. It's not even possible. And so they don't even let themselves go near that. The third group have this belief, you can have it all, but it's really hard work. And somebody's going to have to give. You know, If you have a great business, your relationship doesn't work, great relationship, and a great parent, then you can't have a great business. So each of those three groups, you can't have it all and I haven't got it all. You can have it all, but it's really hard work and something has to give. And the third group, you can have it all, all the time and it benefits other people, but each of those groups are all influenced by what they believe. And so that's why you've got to change your beliefs. You can have it all, all the time. It takes a bit of juggling, but you can have it all, all the time. I have a great marriage, an amazing relationship with my daughter, an incredible career, I'm healthy, and I love my life, so I'd say I have it all but it, and and but you have to believe that you can have it all. people say to me, "No, but how could I could never have a child because I couldn't then run a business, the child would suffer or and that's just not true. There are lots of people who've got it all, and they're very um inspiring, but we don't see another. we see all the people who haven't got it all. And we always focus on how terrible that is. But then if you look at Stella McCartney, she's got four children. She's got an amazing business designer. She's got a wonderful marriage. She's very close to her family. So she's got it all. There's lots of people like that. But again, it's what you, are you looking at everyone who hasn't got it all? Just go and look at some people who've got everything going on and realize that you can have that too.
1: Mm. For people that are listening to this and maybe struggle with money or their career, mm-hmm. Could you share how I find it fascinating that like uh, a two, a 10x jump in your impact in life is actually easier than like a 2x yeah, jump? sure. Because a, a paradigm shift allows mm. like the, a completely new level of impact. I feel like I'm on that journey also now mm. of like jumping and level of impact. So uh, for individuals that aren't concerned with um, just doing a little bit better than they are, but they want to serve and impact in a really mm. big way and they feel it, they have that innate capacity for that within them. Um is it supposed just on a case-by-case basis when you work with people to see what would be limiting from them, you know, mm. jumping to that or believing it's possible?
0: I think everything, impossible means I'm, if you break it down, impossible means I'm possible. Imagine means I'm a genie. Cure mm. comes from the word curious. So, you know, words are very interesting. But if you have that passion to 10X your life, then it's already in you. So go ahead and follow it. You know, the only thing that ever holds you back are your beliefs. And human beings are not fragile, we have these people who are fragile, easily broken, we're not. Human beings are resilient and strong and tough, and they have a massive bounce, back. you think of our ancestors, what they went through with no sanitation, having 10 kids, so we've got a great life, we're so lucky. So. I think you have to, first of all, think of yourself as a big rubber ball. If you believe you can bounce back, because people who make it, it isn't they haven't had adversity, they've heard no, they've been rejected, they've been fired, but they bounce back. And that's the big thing. If you can bounce back, then you'll do great. So if you have that passion to 10X your life and be a speaker, be a coach, write a book, create a program, then it's already in you. You've already got the desire in you. All you have to do is get it out of you. And what gets it out of you is confidence, self-belief, determination, and working hard. And I think a lot of people have forgotten that. They think they just have to manifest. Just sit and go, on, and it will all fall down from the sky. But actually, you have to do three things to manifest. The first is really spend a lot of time saying, I'm worth it. I deserve it. Because 80% of your success will be down to that mindset. The second step is to really look at what you want. Do you want to write a book? Do you want to write a program? Because whatever you require will require something of you. Mm-hmm. And so you've got to think about, well, what do I have to do? Like, what did Eminem have to do? He had to go out and put himself. um When Ed Sheeran wanted to be a singer, he was singing at bus stops and sleeping in a park. He was busking just to get that feeling of people have got to hear my music. He's now, I think, the wealthiest solo artist in the world. But he had to do that thing, first of all, really believe I'm worth it, I've got a song, i got a voice, I'm not going to die with my music inside of me, I've got to get this out. And then he saw what he had to do, which was to busk, to sing outside train stations, tube stations, bus stations, until he built up the confidence to then go and get the contract. But if you do step one, I'm worth it, you have the courage to do step three, which is go out and get it, so believe you're worth it. Take a long, hard look at what you require what does it require of you. And most people don't do the third step, which is go out and get it. Go out and put yourself out there. Take some risk. You know, show people your work, your book, your painting, your art, your idea, your visions. But you can't do step three if you haven't done step one or step two. And it's all about self-belief, you know. Belief without talent will take you way further than talent without belief but if you have both belief and talent then you'll be unstoppable there are people who have tremendous belief and no talent and they make it we look at people like if i said the kardashians that probably sounds unfair but there are reality stars who have very little talent but extraordinary self-belief other people who've got tremendous belief tremendous talent but no belief and they don't make it because the belief will take you further than the talent but if you have both you can be amazing.
1: Mm. It feels like after step one and two and you start to go into the action, yeah. it's like life tests you to show sure, up and see if you'll really show up to see who you say you want to be. Yeah,
0: and people see a delay as a denial. It's It's just a delay. I mean, you know, I was a writer. I can remember still sitting in my house and hearing that thud and knowing that was my manuscript coming back through the letterbox. And I heard that thud a lot. Oh, because they only send it back when they don't want it. And you think Is, they don't want my book. No, that I've got a delay in getting this book published. You know, J.K. Rowling had that thud many times, but she just put it back in the post to someone else and put it back in the post. And she, I remember her saying that the little folder she put it in, they never sent that back, and that was costing her a few dollars. She didn't have a few dollars, but she did that thing. She just kept resending out until it got signed. And that's the thing, if you believe you have a gift and someone says, I don't like your book, you go, okay, send it to someone else who will. It's, it's, this is a delay, it's not a denial. You mustn't give up just because someone didn't like your book, your idea, your vision, because someone else will, but you've got to keep going. Mm. And if you have self-belief, it's much easier to keep going.
1: I've loved this whole conversation so much and every all the nooks and crannies you went into and uh, appreciate you so much for doing your work. Thank you. Yeah. Is there anything else in your heart or that you feel like would be in particular great to share with its audience? Oh, and- yes.
0: Yes. So if you have money blocks, love blocks, wealth blocks, health blocks, success blocks, any kind of block, go because we have free audios for all mm-hmm. of those things. So if you want to have an audio for money blocks or love blocks, they're totally free. We don't ask you for a credit card. Go there. and if you want to train and we've trained sixteen thousand people to be RTT therapists. I was in Mexico last week, and I met about thirty of them. They were all they were all making money. Ones they're so busy, and they said this is the best job in the world, and I love that in a country like Mexico so many of these women said, you know, I'm booked up for three months, i got a great income, I get to be home with my kids in the evening. So if you'd like to become an RTT therapist, because it is the best job in the world, and again, you don't need any background in therapy, just go to rtt.com or to and find out how to apply. So we've got lots of courses, from small hypnosis courses to big RTT training, and they're all on my website. And if you You want some stuff for self-development. that's all there too.
1: Wonderful, wonderful. The last thing before we kind of close out is the power of hypnotherapy and the power of Mm. of being hypnotized just because this is such a big part of your work with RTT. And I think kind of has a misconstrued notion of what it is in the public light. Mm. Um, You know, and um, I suppose we were talking about the power of the subconscious mind and how everything's always being recorded, right? So Mm. us getting ourselves into a, a place that is so suggestible that we can shift in a moment, it's why so many people hire you. It's why your work is so popular. And so any other words you want to share about the power of RTT and then also just hypnotism in general? We well,
0: see, something magical happens in hypnosis. It doesn't happen out of it. And it's the magical thing is that in hypnosis, the mind starts to send different messages to the body. It says, you're not nervous. You're excited. You're not scared. You're ready. You're not inadequate you're everything and so when the mind sends those messages out it's a game changer it only does that in hypnosis because in hypnosis your body is run by a network of intelligence which is totally influenced by your mind in hypnosis you kind of go into that network and you start to send different messages to the body but the body also sends different messages back to the mind So, for instance, if you had an illness like cancer, you can start to tell your mind to heal you, because all healing is self-healing. If you had headaches, you could start to tell the mind to heal. If you had, I don't know, um, a depression because of a hormonal imbalance, you could start to have the mind send different messages to the body, but also the body is sending messages back to the mind that are very different. I've got this. I can do this. I'm ready. And so these three things really only happen in hypnosis. They happen quickly, they happen powerfully. So someone in hypnosis who feels unworthy will start to be worthy and lovable and significant very quickly. And because the mind learns by repetition, hypnosis is powerful at going in and having a look at our beliefs and then changing. And then if you have a recording of that, it will repeat it over and over again until this stops being what you do. And it becomes who you are. And hypnosis is incredibly powerful. It I think it's the best therapy in the world because it has such instant results, but they're powerful, but they're also permanent. They don't wear off. So you might say, I'm doing this tapping, and it's great, and it is great, but you've got to keep doing it with hypnosis. It does it for you. It wires in something new, fires in something new that stays in you. And it stops doing what you do, it becomes who you are. Mm-hmm. So, everything I have in life, and I have a lot like my charters that I could never have, my health, my marriage, everything I have is all because of hypnosis. Wow. So I'm very grateful for it.
1: Mm, I'm excited to explore it more because I, yeah, I haven't had a whole lot of
0: experience. And, you know, it. every if you look at the Olympics now, all the athletes you see that are doing well, they all use hypnosis. I mean, I've, I've hypnotized a lot of Olympic athletic teams and a lot of football teams, a lot of golfers, a lot of um, players at every level. But the good ones all use hypnosis. And there's a saying I heard that said very quickly – Athletes will never get into the Olympics anymore because the ones that do have such a powerful advantage over the ones that don't because it doesn't make you better. It makes you use your potential that most of us don't even know we have.
1: Also, the last thing I wanted to riff on was just quickly the the power of the morning and at night Mm -hmm. when we rise and before we go to bed, we're most adjustable. Mm -hmm. And so... Do you recommend? I mean, your hypnosis is can be done any day, right? But
0: hmm.
1: um, in particular, when we have these statements of truth or things that, yeah, there's something particularly powerful about the beginning and end of the day. Yeah. So
0: when I wake every day, I always say I love my life. I love my sheets. I love my room. I love the shower. I love the first cup of tea. I love the first cup of coffee, because that gratitude in the morning of just loving that. I love this glass of water. I love hearing the ducks outside my house. If you can find something to love that's very simple. And everything becomes great because you're starting off with that gratitude. And then when you're in the shower and the water's coming down, it's a very meditative state is the time to start saying, I'm enough. I matter what else you can do in the shower. I go, I love the smell of this pear conditioner. You might as well use that time. So if you can link an activity to something like whenever I'm in the shower, I say, I'm enough. And when I'm cleaning my teeth, I think it. When I wait for the coffee to brew, I think it. To start your morning with gratitude, I love my life. And then when you're in the shower, start to say, I'm enough, I matter. And before you go to bed at night, again, think, hey, what was great about today? There's always going to be something. Just the fact that you're here and you're alive is great. And those three things will really move you to a different level of being one of those people so evolved, so sorted, and most of all, so happy because happiness is not a destination there's no terminal going oh happiness is a, happiness is where you are it's the journey it's not the destination and again it's an inside job and it's a choice
1: mm. thank you so much you're so articulate and I know you've been doing this for a while but I'm just excited to to feel the response from the audience because there's a lot of really practical things that people can apply in their day-to-day mm. life immediately and so just so grateful for everything that you thank shared you. today and um, the, ripples that, the ripples of the ripples that your work has is just mm. uh, unfathomable. So thank you. And for everybody that's been tuning into this episode of the Know They Self podcast, uh, everywhere you can find Marissa's work and website and links and free meditations will be in the description below. Until next time, be well.